about the protectors podcast is we always forget to hit that good old record button and we start getting into some great conversations but today we have an excellent guest excellent guest but we also have an excellent co-host today's guest is carl hirschman uh decades and decades of just incredible experience uh working all sorts of stuff um from homicide to undercover operations to sex crimes to elder abuse all sorts of incredible stuff including cyber Thank you for joining the Protectors Podcast, and I'm really looking forward to this because I really want, and that's the thing about this show is I'm I'm pretty selfish is because I want to know. I know a lot about false confessions. I know a lot about when it comes to the criminal element and about people being interrogated, but there's a whole spectrum that really kind of gets overlooked, and that's when it comes to sexual assault, rape, and uh, yeah, well, thanks for coming on the show, Carl. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, Carl, we'll jump right into it. You know, you kind of came to my attention because uh, Sarah McCord told me about this show called Victim Suspect on Netflix. And it really opened my eyes because, you know, I came from the Fed world and I never really looked at things you know, like at the at the level of what's going on out there. So let's talk about how you got involved with with Victim Suspect. Yeah, so I was um, retired, retired in 2017 from the San Diego Police Department, spent 32 years there. And uh, my last 32 years, I was, I was a de- or my last 21 years, I was a detective and had gone through some uh, units like, uh, like you had said. And um, I retire and right before I retire, I actually, this attorney gets a hold of me. And that basically asked me if um, if I would help him on a case. And I said, well, I, I can't. I'm an active cop. And he goes, well, just you know, give me your opinion. And I'm like, well, I can. I'm an active cop. So he calls me about five times. <laughs> so finally, he leaves me alone. I, so I retired 2017. A couple months after that, um, same attorney calls me and says, hey, you retired now. And could you help me on this case? And I and he was a defense attorney, by the way. And I was like, well, uh, yeah, sure. And I knew him through the courts. I mean, him and I was kind of battled back and forth, you know, in, 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 uh, in court. So I, I just gave him my, my opinion, my verbal opinion. That was it. Didn't testify or anything. And then he, my, my name kind of got spread out there around the San Diego area, you know, to do this. So that's kind of how I started working cases. Fast forward it to, um, uh, 2021, um, I'm, I'm minding my own business. I moved back to Florida and I'm working cases. I'm traveling, I'm teaching all across the nation. And, um, I get this case from, uh, Buzzfeed, the uh, world news organization. And they call me and said, Hey, um, we'd like to have you take a look at a case. We'd like to hire you. And uh, basically, it was these two detectives who were um, uh, suing BuzzFeed. They had done an article on them um, about this case down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and uh, where this female had um, was being charged with a crime. She ends up committing suicide. And um, they wrote an article, and it goes around the world because it's BuzzFeed. And... Um, these two detectives just get inundated with uh, phone calls and emails 
they attacked them on social media. So they had to shut down all their social media, their, their emails and their phone calls. The, the, the department had to do that. So they decide they're going to sue BuzzFeed. So they do, they hire me. I look at it and I, I when I get these cases, I, I say, I, I generally say, look, um, you know, you're probably not going to like what I have to say. Cops do a pretty good job. You know, there's always little mistakes here and there, but that's, you know, that's just comes with the cost of doing business. So I read it. They do this document dump on me, a huge document dump. And I start reading it 10 minutes in. I just get so mad. I just, I feel the heat in my face. Cause I'm like, what are these cops doing? You know, I mean, it's, it's like embarrassing, you know, and I, I just couldn't understand some of the tactics they had used and, and some of the, just some of the things that they did. And when I was looking at the uh, interviews um, with, when I saw the victim interview, it just made me even more, more mad. So um, I worked that case um, there. there was a second case I got hired up in Virginia. I ended up testifying in that case. And um, it just so happens that Netflix was doing a case. Um, they, they were, they were working on four cases and two of them I had worked worked on and i actually bumped into them up in virginia um like along the state line where bristol is and um this girl had been arrested and convicted of false reporting and she got an appeal and i testified in that appeal um so i ended up having a not guilty well doing that the attorney's like, oh, Netflix is here. They're going to film you. And, and I'm like, no, no, they're not. <laughs> She's like, what? And I go, I don't want to be on Netflix. I really don't trust the media. I don't like them. Um, they're like, no, 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 this will be in a good light. And I'm like, I don't you know, care. I really don't care. I don't trust them. And I don't want to be any part of them. So it's in this little town. And there's only one really nice hotel there. And for there was super expensive. It was $130 a night, but there was super expensive, right? And they have a little bar and grill on the top of the hotel. So I go there, guess who's staying there? Everybody. Like everybody that flew in for this is staying at the same place, including Netflix. So that night we get we go up to this little happy hour with the victim and her family. We go up to um I go up to the bar and um I'm sitting there and he, when I walk to the door, they're all sitting there, all the Netflix, the the camera people. I mean, they had maybe, you know, I'd say five, six, seven people, something like that. So they send me a drink over. They come over, they sit down and Ray, who is the journalist who's in the, um, who did all this research, he's in the film. She was there because she's tracking all this stuff. And I had met Ray uh, a year before at a conference that I was speaking at. And she came up to me and we talked. So they sat there and it, for about an hour and a half and about, I'd say, maybe three drinks later, uh, I'm going to be on Netflix. So <laughs> they talked me into it because they're like, Carl, you have a message. You know, you get your message out of these conferences, you know, 2,000, 3,000 people at a time. Sometimes it's hundreds of people at the time. But you can go, you know, worldwide. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, I don't have any control over what you're going to say. Not that I'm going to say anything bad. Um, she's like, well, do you, are you afraid that you're going to show, you know, cops in a bad light? And I'm like, 
No, not at all. The ones that need to be shown in the bad light need to be shown in the bad light. That's that's a handful. I, I'm not talking. I'm, I'm not saying anything bad about all the cops because, like they, again, we generally do a, a great job. It's just you know in this one area we struggle, and um, that's how I ended up on Netflix. Talk about a tenacious reporter. You know, uh, wow, she's really all over the place. Uh, what's it? Had, is it Rachel DeLeon? Or you call her yes. Ray? Or? Ray. Yeah, I, I was really impressed with her. But in order for her to, like, you know, get that conversation with you and, and for the crew at Netflix to actually build rapport with you, mm-hmm. that's a big thing. And I understand what you mean about the media. And you don't want to come across as, like, hey, you know what? You could be the next one that's going to be canceled. You could be the next one that's going to be mm-hmm. under fire. You could be the next one with a million different people coming after you. So mm-hmm. you had to pick your battles. And, you know, coming from these, like, you know, your decades of experience working primarily for the prosecution side, I would say like, you know, 99.9 times. Mm-hmm. And you said sparring with the defense side, but now all of a sudden you have to take a big step and you know how many, and this is half long after you retire because your identity for three decades was a cop. And now you're, right. you know, we kind of consider them like, Hey, you know what the, the, the bad side, but there really is no bad one side when it comes to this. So what was that like taking that next step into, into this world? Well, the first time I, I got uh, contacted by defense was, he says, look, I got this kid when I say I'm 61. So when I, I got this kid, but he's actually 19 or 20, you know, um, he's being accused of, you know, sexual assault and so on and so forth. And this was, I had already um, moved here back to Florida, my hometown and they're in California. So I, I said, Hey, you know, I'll, I'll come back there. And, um, uh, he gives me the the, the whole story of, as to what he's being accused of. And there was a couple of things in there. And I thought, well, you know, it didn't sound like to me that maybe he was innocent that he didn't do this. So, Sorry about that. Um, so I um, I go out there, I speak with this kid, and um, I sit down, and I I got a good feeling that, you know, and I don't do investigations now. I, I'll talk to a victim, maybe the first disclosure witness, and that's about it, um, because I'm not a private investigator. Uh, I, I'm a forensic interviewer. And I use my expertise in sexual assault to kind of get to the bottom of, of you know, of the, you know, of things. So when I speak with, when I spoke with him, he tells me something completely different than what was in the police report, you know, and I'm not saying just one little inconsistency. I mean, a huge, huge uh, inconsistencies. So I talked to his, um, uh, the first disclosure witness, which happened to be a female. And she told me, she told me that, um, she told me that uh, she told me actually what happened. And he, he was innocent. I mean, he may, he, he felt that he had consent. He did have consent. And then to come to find out that this person um, had reported two other males before. Now, not to say that she can't be sexually assaulted for a third time. But when I found, when I looked into the other two, she pulled the same thing. And I want to discourage anybody from coming forward that has been sexually assaulted. But I still felt, even though I felt I helped him, and I did, 
Um, and, and by the way, this, this young lady was, she was mentally ill and she needed help. Um, I still felt like, uh, I worked for the defense, you know, <laughs> even though this poor kid was not a su suspect right now. Uh, and then the other was when the Netflix series where these girls are arrested or being accused of, um, false reporting, it is a crime. So you do have law enforcement, you know, pressing charges or issuing charges. And, you know, right now I have, I'm going to say, I think nine right now, open cases that I'm working and it's all for the defense or, or, or they're for after the fact or for civil. But um, yeah, it, it put a bad taste in my mouth. I, I tell you, but it isn't like, I mean, I do get cases where I, I look at them and I'm like, I'll call them and say, well, I'm, I'm not going to work this case. Your, your client is, <laughs> your client's a rapist. You know, your client uh, committed a sexual assault and they're like, oh, OK, well, that's what we thought. I'm like, well, you know, so can you just send us your report? And I'm like, no, I'm not. And they're like, well, why not? And like, I'm not going to give you a blueprint to get him off. And that's what my report would be. And that's not going to happen. That was one of the biggest questions I was going to have for you is because like taking these cases that, you know, you know, these people are like, you know, just you with your, your 1300, uh, investigative experience, 1300 cases of sexual assault cases that you've investigated, but no, you just know. And to give over like, kind of like your blueprint, that's like me. Like if I'm working a case and I know how to work the case, I know how to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And then all of a sudden giving it to the criminal and saying, Hey, by the way, this is how we do the cases. So you could use this in the future. I was wondering how you did that. So yeah. Wow. Um, I don't, I don't take payment too. Cause those, I had one guy who was like, well, we paid you to do this. I'm like, you did. You did. It's a, so I, I, I've given you some information. I'm not going to give you all. And I tell you what, don't don't send me any money. That's the way you feel about it. Because they always start off, well, we really need to know. They, they act like, well, if he's guilty, we're good. You know, we know. If he's not guilty, can you help us? But that's not what they're doing. I'm not all of them. Some of them do that, but not all of them are doing that. You know, and there's a lot of things that Laura and I wanted to touch on today. One of them was like the myths, you know, when you're dealing with sexual assault and everything, a lot of people don't want to come forward because for one, they don't think they're going to be heard. And two, they might know the, the suspect and three, they might be intoxicated. So let's just try to unpack some of that. Yeah, sure. So um, relationships are huge when it comes between the victim and a suspect. Um, the closer that relationship, the harder it is to work. Um, not for the legalese, but for not, uh, it, but for emotions and you know, on a given any given case, you, you have on average one third to one half will back out of the process, and that that could be in the middle of your investigation. You could be almost done, and they'll back out. Um, and I. It, it, I understand why. It, it, so it's a tough thing to keep them on board. Um, there's ways of doing that. And that's some of the stuff that I teach. But relationships are, are huge, especially if they've known each other. They were in high school together, now college, or you know, the longer that they've known each other, the harder it is to turn someone in. And the harder it is to say, well, wait a minute, that, that person can go to prison. And then you have your friends 
and even family is like, do you really want to do that to Billy? You know, do you really want to send him to prison? You know, okay, he he screwed up. He he went over the line, but he didn't rape you. But you know, per the penal code, he did. Um, so you know, they're they have all these pressures on them um, to to drop charges or to withdraw from the system. So it's not always just them themselves that's having a hard time with it. It's it's other people, outside people who are pressuring them to do this. Um, as far as the, the alcohol-driven cases, a lot of times they they don't know what happened to them. So it's hard to come to the police and call the police and say, yeah, I got drunk, right? I'm, I'm 17 years old, 18 years old. I'm in college. I got drunk. I'm drinking underage. Um, I, I might have took an ecstasy. Um, um and I, I blacked out and passed out and I woke up and uh, my underwear was off and my vagina is sore, but I don't know what happened to me. Now, most people on the call of the police, it's uh, it was eight o'clock at night. I pulled up to the ATM. I got out. I was withdrawing money. This guy is about five, seven. He had a handgun. He put it in my face, demanded my money. I gave it to him. He, he ran away. And oh, by the way, he was wearing a black top. They can be really detailed. Most of these drunk intox cases, all of them, they have a refracted memory. So they don't they can't give you a, a step by step or a blow by blow of what happened to them. So it that makes them delay reporting, which is about five to 10 days before they figure out. All right. I talked to my friends. I was with this guy. I don't even know who this guy is, but I still got a call. Something happened to me. And they had this this thing inside of them, you know, women know their bodies. They just know, they know something happened to them. Um, they finally, they'll come to the police, you know, five to 10 days later and report a crime. And they may even report something that is not even in the penal code, right? It's missing an element or two. And uh, law enforcement will sometimes turn them away saying, well, you're reporting something that, uh, that you don't even know if a crime occurred. But what they're asking for is, you know, to understand the dynamics of, of how facilitated, you know, drug, alcohol and drugs facilitated assault works is or drunk by intox works is that they, they don't have that memories. They, they, they just don't. Um, but that is part of the crime. And again, that that those are the toughest to work. It's usually your if your witnesses are there, they, they've all been drinking, too. And then your victim does some bizarre things, gets a ride home from, you know, from the, uh, from the suspect, gives them $20 for gas, uh, exchanges phone numbers after the assault. I mean, these things that you're like, well, come on, this, you're asking me to believe too much, but what, what, what we're trying to say is to believe, you know, start by believing. You don't have to believe them at, at the end, but you can start by believing. Don't turn them away when they, when they tell you, give you a bizarre story as to what happened, because I, in my experience that the most bizarre stories tend to be true. I mean, except for the little green Martians coming down, um, that you ain't got a whole nother thing going on there. But, <laughs> uh, but other than that, I mean, you know, start by believing and in, in other words, don't shut them down at the beginning and, and not, um, you know, uh, do an investigation, but that's 85% of your caseload is, is is uh, rape by intoxication? If you, you know, if, if you if you're not working those, then you're not working much. 
you know, and a lot of and a lot of cops don't know how to work those because, you know, consent is the number one defense. And, you know, your 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 um, suspect is claiming, you know, well, I had consent or at least I thought I had consent where they go the diminished capacity. I was blacked out. I was drunk, too, detective. Are, are you going to arrest her for having sex with me because I was drunk? You know, you hear all these these things. Um, and a lot of investigators just kind of wipe their hands and, you know, don't want to deal with it. And, I, and if they don't have training, I don't blame them. Now, Laura, you know, Carl, you're bringing up some excellent points. And I, man, I could really, <laughs> we could talk about this all day long. And I'd like to talk about it as much as possible because the myths and people just, they don't really understand what it's like to take that step forward to report something like this, especially when it comes to an associate. Now, Laura, what is your experience with this? I mean, you, you're coming from the, the, the police aspect as well. Uh, what was your background with all of this stuff and how do you, what's your experience with that? So we talked about this a little bit and, you know, I worked some uh, sex crimes of adults um, where the adults were the victims. Um, but Carl was making a point about, you know, what do you do if, if the victim doesn't remember and so cops get stuck on, oh, my gosh, you know, she or he can't remember what happened. How are we going to work this? You know, we need you to tell us what happened. You need, you're our witness. You're our victim. But I always told people in my unit, like, how about when you work a, a abuse case of a child that is under whatever the age is to to be able to talk. And so do you dismiss that? Or how about homicide investigators? You know, their victim is not talking. So do we just dismiss that because we don't have the victim's side of the story? No, we we base it on other things. So I, I love the Carl touch up on that because that's not just, okay, well, sorry, you can't tell us what happened to you. We can't work your case. Um, and, and as far as the alcohol, I just... You know, I, I hear Carl talking about, you know, the, the suspect being questioned and, and saying things like, well, you know, I was drinking, too. And so then cops get into this whole I mean, I've seen it happen. Other investigators in my unit will say, well, then who raped who? You know, can he allege that she raped me because I was drunk, too? Uh, so they will shy away from that. And then the, the uncomfortable conversations of even just as little as. Hey, let's let's call body parts what they're called. You know, we're adults here and they just get so uncomfortable saying, you know, vagina or intercourse or whatever it is. And and they just don't want to work those cases. They don't. Um, so it, I think it takes a special person. I just want to tell you, Carl, if if this attorney chased you down as much as he did and Netflix and everything, that's because of the reputation you have, you had, and you still have. And so to me, that's, that's huge uh, because you continue to carry that with you. And, and I wanted to ask you this. So how much do you think that investigators or just even street cops opinion on whether this did happen or didn't happen affect the case? So in other words, if this victim comes in and the and the investigator has already made up their mind. Oh, she wasn't raped. Mm -hmm. How does that affect that investigation? Um, it, it affects it a hundred percent because you're the investigator, and you know that next step from let's say it, go, it comes from patrol, right? Patrol goes out and they do their initial 
uh, contact and, and maybe a report, a hopefully report. Um, and then it comes to you. You, di- you dictate where, where that's going to go, how, how you're going to work it, how hard you're going to work it. Um, it, it, it it'll start and uh, it'll begin and end with you. Um, if, if you figure that you, you know, you have this confirmation bias that after reading the initial report, this didn't happen. And now your bias is I have to go find evidence as to this didn't happen. So that'll direct you now not to look for sexual assault, but to look for um, th- that it didn't happen or she's lying about it. Um, those are easy to, to, to work. You can work those within a couple hours, maybe a half a day and get it off your desk versus working it. You know, that's going to take you four to six weeks, depending on the case. Um if you go in as a mindset that this didn't occur, that's how your investigation is going to end up. It didn't occur. If you go into it open-minded, like I, I'm going to you know, look for evidence, I'm going to dig for, for uh, um, witnesses and so on and so forth. Basically, I'm going to get to the truth. And um, if, by the way, if you get 80% of the truth, you're stellar, right? You, you're, you're, you're going places. Most of us, you know, if, we, we get right around 60% of the truth as to what happened. Um, and mainly that has to do with drugs and alcohol on top of it. Um, what the uh, lead investigator does or doesn't do affects the case a hundred percent good or bad. And, you know, good, good is good. Bad is, is something that you would, would be difficult to try to resurrect a, a case or to bring it back. And say, okay, let's start over here, um, because you, you lose so much information, right? And, and basically, our jobs is to to gain knowledge and information, and that could be from interviews, interrogations, evidence. Um, that knowledge and information you can start piecing together that night or what happened. And if your mindset is, I don't believe her or him from the very beginning, that puzzle it's like taking two different puzzles and putting them together. And then taking out a bunch of pieces, you'll you'll never get to the truth as to what happened. So so how how do you think you can overcome that? Because you know, uh, imagine a a supervisor over a unit, and you can be on top of all your your team, and you have this investigator that, as you say, you know, is going to be faster to prove that this person lied because I have this you know, she recanted uh, versus I'm going to put in extra time. Uh, go give me some search warrants, interview more witnesses. I mean, all that's pretty time consuming. Um, so what would you tell that supervisor? What would you tell that uh, person in charge of a, say, uh, sex crimes unit um, about how to keep up with what their investigators are doing and how this, you know, victims recanted doesn't affect their cases? Um, well, first of all, I'd tell them training, right? Training, training, and the proper the uh, proper training, not not you know not Bill that's been doing this for a hundred years, but he's been doing it wrong for a hundred years, you know. And Bill's a nice guy, but he's just you know he's had no proper training. Um, and there's a lot of training stuff. There's online. I speak for uh, In Violence Against uh, Women International. They have a, a full training on there that's free. Um, you go through their motor, um, the, uh, each section, and then you get like a, you know, you answer, a, you take a test and you get a certificate. 
and it's really good training. Plus, we put on regional trainings. Um, I was just up in Baltimore, and then um, now I'm going to be in New Orleans here in a, in, in a month or two. So anyway, um, that supervisor, if you know, all that stuff comes into that supervisor, and, and he or she can see who is shortcutting their cases or who is dissuading witnesses, you know, in other words, talking witnesses or uh, victims out, you know, you know, for coming forward. Um, the bottom line is that you have two people here. One did not get justice. And then the other is a rapist that walked away. And I, I think most cops don't like to hear that they, you know, we're all here because we're winners. Right. And, and, and cops don't like to lose. We don't like losing, you know, foot pursuits, you know, vehicle pursuits, an argument, a fight. We don't like to lose any of that stuff. Um, I would love to see, you know, that that Eisenhower speech, you know, from a supervisor to the troops saying, look, if you're shortcutting these or you're not doing them correctly, you're losing. You know, how come you have about literally 1% of cases across the nation see a jury. That's 1% out of, I don't know, 650,000 cases that are reported. Remember, just two-thirds are not reported. So, I mean, this this is just an epidemic. So why is that? Why is it only 1%? It doesn't make, you know, make any sense. Um, it's just because we're doing them wrong, right? We're, we're we, we're not approaching these cases, you know, the proper way. And supervision, if if that layer that that we can have, you know, the sergeants and lieutenants um, understand, you know, your your uh, your uh, detectives are coming to you with with a bad product, you know, instead of just signing off like in our unit, we, our sergeant would read them and sign off and give it back to us. Well, a lot of that was they look up at you, you hand it to them, they look down, they sign it, and then they give it back to you. They don't even read it. And sometimes it's like, oh, well, I don't read his reports because he's, you know, a great report writer. Well, there's a lot of great report writers, but what was in the report? What was the context of the report? Did they talk to everybody? Was was there something that you could do? I My, my sergeant, I made him read them all. And uh, my first sergeant, which was Joanne Archambo, she founded Imbalance Against Women. She taught me how to do these cases. But when I got new sergeants and I go, no, could you read a sergeant? You know, and we have, you know, he's like, well, we have grammar correct. I'm like, don't read it for grammar, read it for content, context and content. And he's all like, kind of look at me kind of weird. And you've been here a long time. I'm like, yeah, I know. Same way with judges when I, I go get a, a warrant signed. Oh, you know, they know you on a first name basis and they start signing in the bottom. It's like, your honor, very respectfully, can um, can you read it? I just want to make sure I got this one right. And they got to know me. And as soon as I come in, they look down like, oh, I got to read this thing. <laughs> but um, it, it, I, and, and I know supervisors, a lot of supervisors are friends with the people that, that, that work under them. But you can still be friendly and just say, look, did you try a pretext phone call? Yeah, it didn't go so good. Did you try a second one? I can do two. You can do multiples. Um, did you try, you know, or she doesn't want to do a, a pretext phone call. Okay, did her? Did you get her best friend to call the suspect? 
I can do that. Yeah, you can get the best friend can call his best friend. You know, they just think they don't know. You know, they're not trying to hide anything. They just they just don't know that there's all these investigative tools that you can use. Um, and when used, you know, properly, you can get a good case. Absolutely. No, I, I'm I'm over here looking at Jason like he's probably right in, you know, training, 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 because you you just you said it. I mean, it's it comes down to training. And if you don't know what, you know, what old tools we have and, you know, how to follow a lead or anything like that, then we just feel like, oh, we're stuck. This is all I got. I'm going to present it where he's at and weren't deny. Close, no prosecution. And like you said, that victim will never get, it's not just about the justice, but I feel like, you know, that's part of their healing pro, uh, process. And so um, training is big, right, Jason? What you think? Oh, yeah. And that's the thing is like when you bring up training and you brought up a good point is they don't know. And, you know, that's what like, you know, and I always bring up the Fed world because we're like a, a weird animal. Like you go to a, a duty station for three, four, five, six years and you move on to somewhere else. Now, with state and locals, you can stay in the same department for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. And you're building that that training. You're building that base, that investigative base, and you can pass on what you know. But in this environment, if you don't know, you don't know. And especially when it, like you're bringing someone into doing uh, sex crimes and, and, and dealing with really sensitive subjects, some people don't look at them like, hey, you know what? This is just like another investigation. You got to do all the different steps. You got to look at all the different angles and attack it from that angle. So I love the fact that you're doing these trainings. And that's one thing I liked about the end of the Netflix series was you out there training. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this, like, what about that person doesn't want to go to training? Oh, I don't want to go and talk about this. This is not a, an interesting topic. We're not kicking in doors and joining the SWAT team and doing all the fun things. Right. So I do think it takes a, a special person, but I think anybody can be trainable. Um, I don't know if you've had anybody in training that you can just tell they're just, they were told to be there. Right. Oh, absolutely. Especially like from smaller agencies where they don't have a big pool of, of, of people. Um, I was in, um, oh boy, uh, South Dakota, Aberdeen, Aberdeen, South Dakota. And their state puts on a whole um, training and they, I know there's probably, I'm going to say three, 400 people there, mostly law enforcement, but they're advocates and um, they had their forensic nurses and such too. But, um, and I love those little settings like that where I can, you know, during breaks, people walk up to me or I walk up to them. And, and there is this one agency, they had um, seven people from the chief on down and four of them was there, you know, and they said, well, <clears throat> I said, are you detectives? So, you know, who's out on the road? And, and um, they said, well, the chief's working today, you know, patrol. And, but we all, what they do there is they they go to a radio call if they make an arrest or, or they write some paper, you know, write up a report. They're also the detective on it. And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. That's kind of an advantage, though. Right. You're a first responder and you're the main detective on it. So you're seeing everything. Um, but um, with that said, you know, they, they just don't have any training. They don't have time to go get it or um, say like a, a child protective uh, you know, a CPS report comes in from the Child Protective Service and it gets dumped on their lap. 
you're like, I, you know, I don't know, you know, we'll, we'll give it to, give it to Kathy. She, she's done one of these before. And it, it, to them, it's just, they'll work them as, you know, they'll work them like any other case, right? Discover the truth, uh, you know, um, collect evidence, identify the suspect, exonerate the innocent, right? The, the big four. So they, they're going to do that. But it's like, well, it's much more than that, you know, to work a child case versus a, an adult case. And even in adult cases, you have basically, I don't know, 16 um, different sex crimes and you don't work them all the same. You know, you wouldn't work a sex with a minor the same as, you know, um, sexual contact with a prisoner, you know. So um, but yeah, they they want to go to training. The ones that want to go to training, they sit there, they're taking notes, their head is up. And some of them were taking notes on their laptop and I, I hand out a um, my PowerPoint so some of them follow along. And then other ones are sitting there with one eye open and one eye closed. You know, maybe they weren't third watch the day before or whatever. And I, I, I'm the type of instructor, I don't call anybody out, but sometimes I'll go over and I try to stand next to them, you know, because I see other people looking at them and kind of making fun of them. So I kind of try to save them that way, but it is distracting. Um, but, um, you know, they'll come up to me, oh, I'm sorry, you know, yeah, I, I, I'd even ask to go, you know, to do these cases. We're from a small agency. So the guy that was doing sex crimes, um, he got, or he left and went to another agency. So now I'm stuck with them. I was like, Oh my God, you know, I'm stuck with them. I really don't want to do them. And I'm thinking of the poor victims that this guy is going to have not hit it, but it's not his fault. Right. I mean, that's just, it is what it is. I mean, it's all true. I didn't want to go there. I didn't want the, to do these, you know, cases. And I got, you know, I, I'm getting stuck with them, you know, cause not everybody, there's no line to go to a sex crimes unit. There just isn't. I mean, they all want to go mm-hmm. to homicide. It's, and the only way to get them to go to child abuse and homicide is, well, you, you got to go over to sex crimes and child abuse um, for a year or two. And then, you know, and then get on the uh, relief list. And then that's how you get in. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, I, I don't, um, you know, how, how does those two units help you go to homicide? I don't know. Cause I did this. I did that. I and mean, I eventually went to homicide and then I, I ended up coming back after my daughter was born, but I'm like, uh, that's just a scam, right. To get people in. I mean, some of them are long-term, you know, uh, investigations and you do do a lot more at the lab, but other than that, you know, and um, so, yeah, you just don't have, you know, there's some people like, Oh yeah, I wanted to be in the sex crimes unit. But that's like one out of a hundred. I mean, right. I got recruited to come in there. I I got a call from a, a, a sergeant and she's like, hey, your name was given to me. I was like, oh, man, I got to go find somebody and kill them, right? <laughs> hey, your name was given to me and would you like to come to sex crimes? I'm like, well, that sounds cool. Not knowing, right? I've been a detective. I, I, I was an acting detective, regular detective for about four years. And I'm, and I worked our East End. We had nine divisions, and I worked a very, very busy, um, you know, East End. East End San Diego is not the beach, trust me. So, um, so I talked to my wife. She says, "You do what you want." And I don't even look into it. Yep, I'll do it. I go down there, and because I'm going to catch rapists, and then my first like twenty cases were all drunk people, and I hated it. And I went to my sergeant, and I said, "Hey, I, I want to be moved." And she was like, "What?" And you just got here and, and I've been here like four months. And I said, Sarge, I know I'm new and I, I know I'm going to get these crappy cases. And I just, you know, she goes, well, what's happening? I said, they don't call me back. They lied to me. 
Mm-hmm. They're all drunk. They, they can't give me a, a solid uh, interview. Um, someone cussed me out. Uh, I, I'm like, I did not know it was like this. I thought I was going to catch serial rapist. And I didn't know. I didn't know it was like this. And um, she goes, you know, Carl, I know you can do this. You know, she, she starts buttering me up and starts giving me my resume and stuff. I'm like, well, she says, look, just give it a year. And she goes, you have to be here a year anyway before you can transfer out. So, and I'm like, okay. And I remember right before I left her cubicle, she goes, Carl. And I, I go, I go, yes, Sarge. She goes, um, um, you, somebody told me you play softball. And I said, I do. And she says, uh, are you good at it? And I said, well, I'm okay. My team's good at it, but I'm okay. And she says, what night do you play? And I was like, I play Tuesday nights. And she goes, oh, so do you, do you go out there like, knowing you're going to lose? And I said, no. I said, there's one team that could, could beat up on us, but I, she goes, but do you go out there knowing you're going to lose? And I said, no. And she goes, well, when you go back to your cubicle, think of the same thing, go back to knowing that you're not going to lose. I love that. Yeah. So I yeah, said, that's great. damn it. She got me. <laughs> she challenged me. And if that's you were, right. If you were a cop to do anything. You challenged them. And I tell you, when I, I did, when I started getting training and um, I, I went back and all those cases, I reworked them and I, I looked at them differently. And that is a huge step is just keeping that open mind and approachingly differently. Like I have to win this. If it's, if it's a game, I can play it. I can play it. That's right. Okay. So you, we talk training and I love, that's like one of my favorite words. So you're out there training people. How would people find your training? Um, well, if they get on the in violence against women, international, um, website and, um, it'll come up and, uh, it'll say training, um, uh, online training Institute. And they just tap on that. And that's, that, that, that's the training there. They also have the cadre of experts, which I'm one of them. There's, I think, 22 of us. And um, a lot of people find me there. They'll, they'll look on there to have instructors come out and teach in their community. And each one of us teach, some of us teaches that same thing, and then others teach something you know completely different. And we have prosecutors on there. We have uh, lab people. Um, we have um, research people. So there's a, all pretty much all the disciplines are covered in our, um, our, our cadres of experts. And then some of it's word of mouth. Um, they'll say, you know, one County will have me. And then the, the other, the other training director from another County will come over and watch and they're like, Oh yeah, we'd love to have you. And before you know it, you know, I, you teach all over the state of Ohio or South Dakota, never Hawaii. And I've never, never trained in Hawaii, but, um, but I've been Pearl Harbor a thousand times on a, on a warship, but never, never training. So, um, but that, that's how, um, and then sometimes one of my colleagues would get a hold of me and say, Hey, Carl, I was at this conference and somebody was, they wanted a, um, a, a presentation on false reporting, which seems like right now I, I get a lot of that to train and I do like a two and a half hour well, now, now three hour class on that. So they, um, you know, that that's also by word of mouth. And I was up in, um, 
teaching at or training at um, the New York State Police, their academy. And um, man, you want to talk about money? <laughs> These guys up in New York got it, man. Their state police, it's like a college campus. I walked wow. around there, I was like, where's all the college kids? <laughs> it, and it was beautiful. I mean, it was a beautiful campus. And and I taught, I, I was training in this like half moon uh, dome thing. You know, it's like I'm down here and there's like all these, all these uh, chairs up and, you know, and uh, everybody's looking down on me. It's like, wow, this is cool. But um, I, there's a couple of people that they had invited, not, not just their, um, their cops from New York, but other people invited other disciplines about five or six came up to me and said, Hey, give, they gave me their card. Um, or they took down my email and they said, Hey, we want you to come out. You know, we're, we're over in, um, you know, near Buffalo or we're down South or whatever. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of how I got in podcasts like this. Mm-hmm. And certainly, well, I've already had one other podcast um, that I did, but certainly uh, through the Netflix um, show I've gotten, man, probably 50 or 60 people contacting me, asking me to come to training, do training. So. Yeah, that's great. I think, you know, part of it is all these myths that uh, Jason was mentioning earlier, you know, people don't understand cops don't understand that, you know, there's certain things that, um, you know, we, we grow up thinking, you know, men cannot be raped and, you know, women are not rapists. And, you know, if, if both parties are drunk, then that's not a, you know, one couldn't have sexually assaulted the other, or why did it take you so long? So you get into the late disclosures and, you know, I remember getting cases that, you know, happen, we don't have statute of limitations in my state. And so I will get cases with dates of, uh, you know, 10 years before I was even born. And I'm like, how am I going to do this? Right. No evidence is gone. And people will say, well, I just don't understand how you were sexually assaulted in, you know, the 1970s and you're just coming forward and they get stuck on. That's just not possible. Cause if I was raped, you know, I immediately go to the hospital, I immediately dial 911 and I will tell my best friend and, you know, and so all this myths, right? Uh, you know, parents, you get into incest. I mean, don't get me started, right? So mm-hmm. all this myths, you know, that you have and need to be addressed in training. Uh, even not just cops, but you need to train juries and prosecutors and judges, right? Right. And that and I tell like I'll tell the prosecutors if you're closing and if you're opening and closing arguments are, you know, usually openings about 30 minutes and your closing is about an hour and a half, you need, you need to triple that. You know, you, you need to have experts take the stand so we can explain instead of, you know, instead of saying yes or no, I don't know. Cause I can, you, I can have an open-ended answer, right. I can explain things and delayed, you know, delayed reporting and inconsistent statements are the two biggest things that, is thrown, uh, you know, at the jury as, as red herrings, you know, that, Oh, come on. You know, like you were saying, if you were really sexually assaulted, you would have called 911. Okay. So you called your friend first, but you should have called 911. But I tell you, I mean, I had, I've had cases, well, I've had cases of stranger sexual assault. 
I had this lady, um, she's 55 years old. Uh, she's uh, uh, an MD. She's a doctor. She's home. It's three o'clock in the morning. Her husband is also a, a physician and he goes down to uh, Baja, California on a fishing trip. He's down there for a week. She's sexually assaulted in her own bed at, 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 at three o'clock in the morning. Um, after the assault is done and, and, the, and um, the suspect flees, first person she ca- tries to call is her husband. Now he's down in Mexico. She can't get through. She calls multiple times. She ends up calling her sister who lives up in Northern California. And she tells her what happened. She goes, well, hang up and call, call 911, call the police. She hangs up. Who does she call? She calls her mom. Now she made like six phone calls. I mean, this is on a stranger rape. I'm literally masked, had a knife, crawls through the window, gets into her home because, because of trauma. She's not, this is how she's reacting to this. It's just like when we're in, in, in a gunfight or we're in a fight for our lives or we're in a chase. You know, there's a lot of things. I don't know how many stop signs I blew through. I knew it was a lot, but I don't know how many, you know, because you're so tunnel vision. But she, something horrific happened to her and that was her go-to. Her safest place was her husband. So she called him. And then it literally five or six times it, it, within a 20-minute period. So she ends up, uh, her uh, sister, and so her mom hangs up and calls her sister. Her sister ends up calling 911 for her. Mm-hmm. And there's a big delay because she's out of the county. And, and I mean, by the time the police get there, it was a little over an hour. Um, but... You know, I mean, this guy was linked to other sexual assaults, but this same phenomenon happens across the gamut of uh, of sex crimes. I don't care what type you're talking about. I mean, like child child abuse, right? Child uh, mm-hmm. sexual abuse. You, does an eight year old call nine one one? No. Does a twelve year old call nine one one? No, they don't. They never call law enforcement. They they may tell somebody when they get a little older usually a best friend, like you said, and then usually the best friend will, they'll take that extra step. And that's how it's told. It's very rare. And I mean, very rare that the victim calls directly and almost. And immediately. Almost never right. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah, just never happens. No. But that is, you know, if you're a defense attorney, ha, huh, that's, that's, there's my one, my one hook in, in, into her line. Right. Cause right. you were, you were, you know, trying to think of what to say and you were acting this out and then you put somebody like me up on the stand. I can explain that, that 99.9% of my cases were delayed reports. Well, why so many, uh, detective? Well, because they're either blacked out, passed out, don't know what happened to them. They were with somebody they shouldn't have been with, you know, she's married and, you know, and she's maybe seeing, you know, having an affair and, and then gets raped by the person she's having an affair that's not a 911 call. Okay, you're not supposed to be out with Kathy at the beach. Oh no, mom, I'm I'm going to uh, I'm going with Sally to the to the movies. Well, I get sexually assaulted at the beach. That's not a 911 call. Okay, my my uh, best friend's boyfriend, I woke up and he was having sex with me um, when I was you know when I was drunk. That's not a 911. I mean, I could sit here all the rest of the afternoon and tell you that these are not 911 calls. Now, when they are uh, 911 calls. It's, um, you know, female goes to party, uh, at the party, she gets, uh, severely intoxicated. They take her to the back bedroom or friends, let her sleep it off while the party c- continues. Then you have suspect goes down, 
is having sex with her. One of her friends walks in and sees that her friend is completely out. This guy is, is ha having sex with her. There might be some scream and get the hell out of here. And then, and then they can't wake her up. And now they're calling 911, not because of the assault, but they're calling 911 because they, they can't get her to wake up. So they, they fear for, you know, it's a medical situation. And then the sexual assault comes second. That's about the only way that that occurs. Um, other than that, other than that, you're running and gunning as a, as a uh, investigator. You know, and sometimes it's days and weeks or months. And sometimes years later, you're like, OK, let's open up a case. But as mm -hmm. you know, you know, Laura, that the longer you wait to work on a case, the harder it is. You know, mm -hmm. memories fade. You lose, you know, um, evidence. You right. know, and also the person that comes forward now, um, you know, there, there's a lot of explaining to do, if you will. I mean, I understand why you weighed it, but now for me and you, we have to explain that, what she was right. going through, what she going through counseling and all this. At some point, she was ready to come forward. Sorry, this happened to be two years down the road. Now, we have in California, the statute of limitations. Wow. So it's three, six or nine years. Child molest, is, there's none. So they just, they just changed that two years ago. Wow, we only have it for spouse, uh, spousal sexual assault in his oh, days. Okay. Yeah, but if it's you know anybody but your your spouse, then then yeah, no. I mean, I got cases from sixties and seventies, and I'm like, all right, let's try to do the best we can, right? All right, Jason, we I could I, I was gonna say we, but I could talk about this all day. I'll let you all wrap it up for us. Yeah, we could talk about this all day long, but there is one last thing I want to touch on, Carl. I was looking at your resume, 1987 and 1988, undercover in high school. <laughs> Heck yeah, this is what I'm talking about. This is like 21 Jump Street back. But I was going to say. Yeah, what's up? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, let me tell you, it was the most stressful thing I did in all of law enforcement. <laughs> um, yeah, somebody was telling me, I, somebody just saw that, too, and they were telling me that, that let one percent less than one percent of one percent of law enforcement has ever done that but um I, I had a youthful appearance uh jason so um just bear with me i'm not I'm, I, I didn't go to high school two two weeks ago looking like this <laughs> so i looked really young i went into the navy i was 17 my mom signed for me i went in and my first day of boot camp, uh, our, we call them CCs, not drill instructors. So we call them company commanders. And our, our CCs coming down. He's yelling at everybody. And this is 1979. So he comes up to me and he looks down. And I'm, I'm still growing. I didn't finish growing until I was like 21. But uh, and I, I, my hair is gone. My ears are sticking out. And he goes, oh, my God, who brought their little brother to boot camp? I was like horrified. and But I, I looked really young. So... <clears throat> Uh, that kind of followed me all the way through the Navy. You know, I did eight years in the Navy and four at sea and, and four at shore. And uh, at, when I was on shore duty, that's how I ended up becoming a cop. So I get into uh, the police department. I uh, get into the academy. I graduate the academy. I'm out on my field training. My, uh, in my second uh, phase, some narc, some cop with the ponytail, older guy meets up with my uh, my uh, field training officer and he's over there talking to him. And I'm, I'm sitting there doing like a report 
you know, that we had just came from. I don't, I have no clue what they're talking about. So they wave me out and I come up to him and he starts talking to me. Oh, tell me something about yourself. This guy in his ponytail and a beard. And I was like, I didn't even know he's a cop. So I'm like, uh, so I just started telling him about myself and I go, who are you? And he goes, Oh, I'm, I'm Jim Clem. I'm, uh, I work in narcotics, you know? And I'm like, Oh, he goes, what would you think about working undercover? <laughs> and I look at that. I'm like, well, I don't quite look like I could buy drugs. I mean, look at me. I just came out of the military. So I have my military haircut, which by the way, I liked, uh, I, I don't look like he goes, Hey, soccer moms buy drugs. And when he said that, I was like, does he want me to be a soccer mom? What is going on here? So I remember Jump Street, 21 Jump Street, as a television show in the 70s. I didn't know it was a real thing. So he goes, no, no, no. You would buy drugs in high school. And I'm like, oh, still, I'm thinking driving on at lunchtime or something, driving off. And he goes, so I'm like, oh, I said, um, yeah, sure. When what school? He goes, well, wait a minute. He goes, you'd be in an undercover capacity. I'm like, okay. I go, whoa. Okay, I would actually go to school. And he goes, yeah, you would go to the classes. And I'm like, uh, and the thing that flashed in my mind was Navy. Do you know what Navy stands for? Never again volunteer yourself. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> so I'm thinking. Navy, 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 and but I'm new. Sure, why not? <laughs> and I, I went to the 21 Jump Street School is up in LA, and uh, it's in the basement <clears throat> of this building, and it's like a, a school down there. They have school rooms and chalkboards, and when they had chalkboards, they had all that stuff down there, and they had a uh, they. So this thing was six weeks long, and I had to learn how to. Like I, I never rolled a marijuana cigarette in my life. Right. So they give you real marijuana. They put in these little boxes and they said, okay. And then they gave you uh, like cocaine, but it was fake. It was, uh, you put it like, in, it was in a little bin and you had to do a, a bindle. Those I could do. These were easy. So they, they, they take, take these boxes, they put them all out and I'm sitting there trying and I keep breaking the paper. So the guy next to me, He's like, boop, 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 done. And he looks at me and goes, what are you doing, Hirschman? And I'm like, I can't do this. I look over and he had these perfectly rolled marijuana cigarettes. And I'm like, how did you, how did you know how to do that? And he gives me this like, look like you never smoked in, in high school. I'm like, I never even touched marijuana until now. He goes, oh, come on. I'm like, I never have. So when the instructor would walk by, he'd sneak over and he's, he's showing me how to do one. To, to make one to this day, I still can't, but he was good at it. And then I'm like, how did he become a cop? It's, you know, back in the seventies, was still a felony, by the way. Um, yeah, that's, so I, I tell you though, I, I couldn't carry a gun on. I, so I worked four schools throughout the year, buying drugs, buying guns, stole a couple of cars. Um, but I, my gun, I had a little snub nose, uh, 38 Smith and Wesson. And I, I kept a, they put a holster underneath my seat and my car, but I couldn't bring it into, into, uh, the school, um, because they were afraid somebody would see it or I, you know, I get in a fight or something. And, 
Um, but yeah, I tell you, man, I, I had to carry a pack of Marlboros with me and act like I smoke and I hate smoking. I hate, uh, it's just stunk. So every day uh, I, when I leave school, I go straight home and just take three showers. That smoke gets in your hair, gets in your clothes. I had a special bag. I put my clothes in. That's how much I hated it. But I tell you what, it worked. I had to go out to the, they had a little smoking chain. It was the other side of the, this chain that was off school campus. And you go out there with a pack of Marlboros, you're going in with an empty pack of Marlboros because they bum cigarettes. And that's how you, I made all my connections. So uh, made 138 arrests out of four schools. And some of these schools are huge. I mean, you know, thousands of kids in these schools. Um, most of it was for marijuana, some crack, um, but a lot of marijuana. I love uh, it. Bought a, bought a few guns and um, stole like a the real cars. the real Twenty One Jump Street. I mean, we we really need to have you back on the show because <clears throat> there is so much we could talk about. And uh, <laughs> yes. believe me, we could talk all day long, and I want to talk all day long, but. We typically uh, we just try to touch on a couple, couple yeah, topics sure. on this, but man, definitely, Carl, you got to come back sure. on. This yeah, is great. I, and uh, I love you. We want to thank you, and Laura, oh, thank welcome. you as well. No problem. You're welcome. I'm so glad I'm here. This yeah, is well, Laura's nice very first podcast as well. Well, yeah. Carl, you got her. You got her by one podcast. So. No. <laughs> yeah, Carl, you're definitely welcome back on. I'd really like to really unpack a lot more stuff when it comes to this. And sure. definitely, definitely want to talk to you offline again sometime. Sure. And I would love to, I mean, there's quite a few uh, issues I'd like to talk to you about as far as the, where, where we're kind of going wrong on these things and sex crimes and, you know, and, and how we can correct that. And so, yeah, just give Solutions. me a, a good date. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely.